You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message and welcome to the tribe. The letter to Philadelphia. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and a new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Hello to everyone joining us via Facebook Live. I see we got Kim and Leticia and we got Rosenda. Joining us, hello to you guys, hello to everyone here in the Cameo Theater and in the Video Cafe. My name is Lee, as mentioned, and we are in part seven of a journey through a letter that was written in the late first century, collected in our Bibles known as Revelation. And we are in the part of this revelation in which God himself, Jesus, had communicated seven distinct messages to seven prominent Jesus-centered communities in the first century. And Jesus's message that we're going to explore today to the community of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, not where the Fresh Prince was born and raised, but in first century uh, Asia Minor, it's especially critical that we allow to penetrate our hearts and our minds, and here's why. So do y'all recall in part three of this series, uh, we said that of the seven communities that Jesus addressed, only two of them did not receive a sharp rebuke or a sharp criticism from him. Well, today, the message to Philadelphia is actually the second of those only two in which Jesus actually commended the community. And come on, y'all, let's all be real here. We don't want to be a part of a community in which Jesus says that we are being foolish or unproductive. I'm sure you would agree with me that we all want to absolutely be a part of a community in which the creator of all things celebrates and commends for at least attempting to live honorably. Am I right about that? And so, because of that, we have to pay special attention as to what was so unique about the Philadelphians. Now, what's especially encouraging about this particular message is this. When Jesus walked this earth, he taught that there will come a day in which God will exact or he will finalize his judgment on the world. In order for God to put an end to all evil, in order for him to bring forth justice against all wickedness and to usher in righteousness... Humanity will undergo a period of calamity and natural disasters like never before. The wrath that God will unleash on this world during this period, it will be so intense that it will never be needed ever again. Now, we're going to go into the details of this severe time of testing here in a couple of weeks, but let me give you guys this for free here. Every single one of us 
should seek to avoid at all costs being a part of this period of great distress. I sure as heck don't want to experience it. And in a couple of weeks, when you learn more about it, you're not going to want to experience it either. And so here's the encouraging part. Here's the amazing news about that. That if we do what the Philadelphians did, we won't have to experience this time of great tribulation. Jesus promised the Philadelphians, and he promises you, and he promises me that he will protect us from that time of God's wrath that's unleashed. He said, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world. And then, on top of all of that, Jesus made another huge promise to his followers that should bring us all a sense of peace and should give us all a sense of excitement, if you will. Now, for those of us who are here in South Texas, Jesus's promise, it will sound a lot like that very familiar personal injury lawyer commercial. You know, the one where the attorney says, you deserve respect and justice, so we demand it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You see, Jesus, he promised that he would ensure that his followers, you and me, that we will one day get the respect and the justice that we deserve. He promised to demand it of our enemies and to make known his preference and his pride for us. Jesus said it this way. He said, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I loved you. That's pretty dope, right? Like, how sweet is that? And so my heart for our time together today is that we all would finish this conversation with a sense of peace and a sense of contentment, knowing exactly how it is we can live that Jesus will commend and celebrate, that we would avoid any correction. And my heart is that we will all leave this time together today with a sense of peace, knowing exactly how we might go about being protected from that time of severe testing, that time of God's wrath on the earth. And my heart is that we'll have a sense of peace, knowing exactly what it is we might need to do so that Jesus will demand the respect and justice from our enemies. Ultimately, what we're going to do is explore how we might be a community, a tribe like Philadelphia that was commended. But before we jump into today's teaching, as always, would you join me in asking our Heavenly Father by His Spirit to speak to us? Heavenly Father, we submit this time to you. We submit our minds to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help calm our racing and distracted minds, drown out whatever distractions we may have come in here with, whatever worries or concerns, and God, give us a sense of calm and attentiveness and focus that we might be centered on whatever it is you have to say to us. And Lord, for me, I just ask that as always, you would use me as your vessel, your instrument, that the words that come out of my mouth would be an accurate depiction of exactly who you are and that they would be an encouragement to your children who you love. And I pray all of this in Jesus's name. Amen. And so what was so commendable about Jesus's followers in Philadelphia? Well, to answer that question, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to consider a time in which you felt shut out by people you thought had your best interests at heart. Shut out by people you thought had your back. For example, perhaps someone you thought was a friend. They unexpectedly blocked you from viewing their social media profile. Or maybe someone that you had been dating out of nowhere. You thought everything was going well, but they blocked your phone number and they ghosted you. 
Or perhaps you're never invited to the after-school kickbacks or after-work happy hour gatherings. You only ever hear about it, and you're like, hey, how come I didn't get invited? Or maybe you're not included in certain conversations, crucial conversations at work that you absolutely can contribute to. And the reason I want you to consider a time in which you have been shut out by others is because your experience will give you a little glimpse into what Jesus' Philadelphian followers Experience. And actually, we don't even have to try hard or imagine too hard because in the account about Jesus's life known as the Gospel of John, we're given a concrete example of what they faced. And so let's briefly put a pin in studying Revelation. Let's not yet jump into that. And let's together travel back in time 60 more years from the time that Revelation was written around 95 AD to around 33 AD. Now, here's what John recorded that went down on this particular occasion. So sort of like bouncers at a bar or at a club who determine whether or not you meet certain requirements for the dress code. There was a certain group of religious authorities who saw it as their duty to rigorously uphold the laws that were recorded in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. And so they proclaimed themselves to be sort of like doorkeepers or bouncers for God. And they determined who got access to God's privileges. And so when Jesus healed a man who had been born blind, these bouncers for God, they thought to themselves, whoa, wait a second, how can this be? We did not authorize this, so surely this cannot be a healing, a privilege from God. To which the man that Jesus healed retorted, look, All I know is I was once blind, but now I can see. I can't explain how it happened, so surely this Jesus guy is in fact from God. And so since those doorkeepers, since they felt they were the only ones who could determine what was and what was not from God, this man's response, it infuriated them. And so they used their authority to sentence him to an extreme form of punishment in that day. They excommunicated him. And it was a sort of death penalty sentencing for that culture. You see, they cut this man off from their Jewish community's privileges and protection. They denied his access to uh, the center for Jewish activity known as the synagogue. And it was a known fact that if anybody associated with him, then they would suffer the exact same consequences because this man had been canceled. And so nobody would associate with this man. He was left to fend for himself. And because these self-proclaimed doorkeepers for God, they issued this sort of sentencing, well, then it symbolized to all the community, all the people that God too had rejected this man and that he had forever been cut off from eventual admittance into God's coming kingdom. Now, here's how John recorded how the man that Jesus healed had been shut out by people that should have had his interests at heart. John wrote, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as the one true God or the Messiah, that person would be banned from their community, banned from the synagogue. And then they threw that man out. Now let's end that flashback. And let's once again, fast forward 60 years back to 95 AD, and let's get back into Jesus's message in Revelation. And how these self-proclaimed doorkeepers for God shut out the man that Jesus healed in 33 AD, well, that is almost exactly the same experience that Jesus's followers in Philadelphia were experiencing in 95 AD by the new generation of doorkeepers. 
And so let's go back to that moment a few moments ago when I asked you to consider a time where you felt shut out by somebody who should have had your interests at heart. And I want you to take those sentiments that you felt at that time and then add to it being shunned by your own flesh and blood, the people who should have had your back. And then add to that you being left to fend for yourself, shut out as if you didn't, as if you didn't matter, as if you weren't valued, as if you didn't even exist. Now, how do you imagine you would feel? I can answer that for you. Let me tell you how I would feel. I imagine I would feel a sting of rejection and I'd probably wrestle with wanting people's approval and wanting people's acceptance. And I imagine that I would probably begin to worry about how I would ever survive without belonging to a community. And then fear might begin to overcome me and I might feel tempted to do whatever is necessary to once again be readmitted into that community, that synagogue. Or perhaps I'd feel a little bit of anger and I'd start to flirt with the idea of retaliation. Or maybe, maybe I'd begin to get a little confused and perplexed, like reconsidering, should I really be believing in this God, Jesus? I mean, nobody else is believing and look at the consequences that's associated with it. And so these sentiments of being shut out are some of what Jesus's followers in Philadelphia, they would have wrestled with. And it's in this context of these circumstances that Jesus messaged them. And so here's what Jesus said, or here's how Jesus addressed them. And really the question that we need to ask though is how did they respond to being shut out that was so commendable that Jesus wanted you and wanted me to learn from them? And so how Jesus addressed the Philadelphians, it gives us a little insight as to what was commendable about them. And it gives us a little insight as to what you and I need to know and what we need in order to drive our conduct. Now, what Jesus would have said to them was uh, very encouraging, and it was a refreshing reminder for them. You see, Jesus, he alluded to a story in their Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament and the rest of our conversation hinges on this story. So y'all pay attention. It's the story of Eliakim. Now, Eliakim, he was sort of, for his day, like a prime minister to the Judean kingdom. Right? He was the second in command to the king. And he justly and he judiciously governed all of the kingdom's affairs. And Eliakim, as if the people of the kingdom were his own family, as if they were own kiddos of his, he faithfully cared for everyone. And he ensured that the people of the kingdom had the resources that they need, the provisions and the protections that they needed. Now, Eliakim also had all authority to grant access to the king's presence and to the king's resources, his privileges. That is, Eliakim, he had the key to the kingdom also known as the key to the house of David. Now, the unparalleled power that Eliakim had and his heart to provide and to protect the people in his kingdom is described by God this way as he told Eliakim's predecessor that there was going to be a transition of power. God said, I will hand your authority over to Eliakim and he will be like a provider and he will be like a protector. He will be like a father. God went on to say that I will place all authority in his hands. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And whatever decision he makes, nobody's going to overturn. So whatever he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. And so 
with this story of Eliakim in mind, alluding to Eliakim's heart to provide and to protect for the people of the kingdom and alluding to Eliakim's unparalleled power to grant access to the king's presence and the king's resources, his privileges, Jesus essentially said to the Philadelphians, look, y'all, I am like the new Eliakim. And I understand that you're all being mistreated, that you're being shut out from the privileges and the protection of community. And I know that there's a sting of rejection that you're wrestling with, and maybe you're having a temptation to retaliate. And I know that what they're saying is making you a little bit curious and is making you question whether or not you will actually be rejected from God's coming kingdom. But y'all remember, they don't have that authority to determine who has access to God and who doesn't. I have that authority and I will give you access to God's presence. I will give you access to his provisions and his protection. I am the only one with the authority to do so. I'm the only one who possesses the key to God's kingdom, the key of the house of David. Jesus declared his heart to provide and protect and his unparalleled power this way. He said, thus says the Holy one, the true one, the one who has all power and authority over God's kingdom, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one opens. When I make a decision, no one is going to be able to overturn it. And so based on how Jesus identified himself to the Philadelphians, here's what we know. We know that they had accepted and affirmed. They had arrived at a place where they accepted and affirmed that similar to the authority that Eliakim had over that Judean kingdom, that Jesus had all power and authority over God's kingdom. And so the Philadelphians, they had become persuaded that Jesus is the only one with authority to grant access to God's presence and privileges, that he's the only one that is able to unlock God's kingdom, that he has the key of David. And so if we If we are going to be a community, a tribe like the Philadelphians, then we all at some point have to arrive at a similar core understanding. We have to all become so persuaded that Jesus has all power and authority that it becomes the central conviction that drives our conduct. Let me say that again. You and I, we all have to arrive at a place in our faith journey where we all become so persuaded that Jesus has all power and authority that that becomes the central conviction that drives our conduct, every conversation, every action, every interaction with others. And so at City Tribe, we are so passionate and so adamant about helping you arrive there in your faith journey that we have a gathering to help you. We have a gathering to help you understand the historical, the philosophical, the scientific, sociological, and experiential evidence, reasons why you can accept and affirm that Jesus is, in fact, the one true God. It's called Jesus 101. It's a Jesus 101 fireside, a casual conversation where we explore all of the evidence why you can believe in Jesus. And so y'all, you've got to pay attention to the pre-message announcements and the City Tribe Facebook and Instagram posts to find out when the next one is. We're going to host the next Jesus 101 fireside in a couple of weeks. And now in part three of this series, we explored why you can believe Jesus 
is God. And so there's another resource for you. You can go back and listen to that teaching. But as for today, the remainder of our time, instead of exploring why you can believe Jesus is God, we're going to instead explore why it matters that you believe Jesus is God. And so why should it matter? Why should it matter that you and I arrive at a place in our faith journey where we accept and affirm that Jesus is the one true God, that he is the only one with power and authority to grant us access to God's presence and privileges? Well, what Jesus next said in his message to the Philadelphians, it answers that, and it answers why it should matter to you and to me. And to best understand what Jesus said, let's once again revisit that occasion in 33 AD. The occasion we explored just a few moments ago where Jesus had healed a man and this man had become excommunicated and sentenced to a sort of death penalty. He was shut out. And so here's where we pick right back up, right where we left off. What happened was Jesus learned that this man that he healed had been shut out from the synagogue and he was not happy about it. And so Jesus confronted those so-called doorkeepers for God, and then he began to clarify for them exactly why believing in him, the declaration that the guy made that Jesus is Messiah, why it matters. And then he began to clarify exactly how anyone would actually gain access to God's presence and his privileges. And what Jesus would have said from the crowd's perspective, it would have been understood something in a way like this. If anyone wants to ever access God's presence and privileges for eternity, all they must do is this, just accept and affirm that I am the one true God. All they have to do is simply believe in me like this guy who declared I was Messiah. And maybe you guys have heard this before, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever should believe shall not perish, but have eternal life. All you have to do is believe. And then Jesus went on to say, look, if anyone wants to experience a life of purpose and passion and peace and power on this earth in this lifetime, they must act on what I've said and they must imitate what I've done. That is when the central conviction driving your conduct is that I, Jesus, have all power and authority, you will begin to experience life in its fullest possible quality. Jesus said it this way. John recorded it like this. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, I am the only means by which anyone can ever experience God's presence and his privileges. I am the what? Door. And then Jesus went on to repeat himself. And y'all, we say this all of the time. When Jesus repeats himself, you better pay attention because he's trying to get a point across. Jesus again said, I am the door. If anyone places their trust in me, if they accept and affirm that I am the one true God, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will come in and he will go out and he will find that peace. He will find that protection. He will find pasture. I have come that they may have life, a life of purpose and passion and power and promise about the future. And they have it in abundance. Now let's end that flashback. And let's again fast forward 60 years back to 95 AD to Jesus's message in Revelation. Jesus, alluding to that very teaching that we just discussed, alluding to the fact that he's the only means by which anyone can ever enter into eternity, that he is the door. And what Jesus said next, it's the reason why it mattered that the Philadelphians accepted and affirmed that he is God. It's the reason why it matters that you and I also arrive at that place in our faith 
journey. Jesus, what he said, implied, all right, Philadelphians, because you have accepted and affirmed that I am the only one with authority, that I have the key to God's kingdom, the key of David, well, I give you my spirit then as a guarantee that you have access to my presence and my privileges in the here and now and for eternity. My spirit, I pour out into you, onto you. It is yours now and forever, and no one and nothing can ever take it away from you. Jesus said it this way to the Philadelphians. Look, I have placed before you an open what? Door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and you have not rejected me. You have accepted and affirmed me. You have not denied my name. Now, before we go any further, all right, let me just say that I acknowledge that there will be some folks who will teach that very passage and they will interpret it as because of Philadelphia's geographical location in the first century, that Jesus's phrase, open door, that it should be interpreted as him saying, hey, I'm going to make a strategic opportunity for you guys to be a place where you could effectively teach about me and you won't experience any persecution and you won't experience any jail time or martyrdom. And that could very well be a double meaning to Jesus's use of the phrase open door. And if you believe that, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you about that, but check this. So there's this other historically reliable document that was written just a few years after Revelation began to circulate. It's known as the Epistle of Ignatius to the Philadelphians. And in that, we read another example of how the Philadelphians, they would have interpreted Jesus's reference to the phrase open door. And so as he was on his way actually to be martyred and to die for his faith in Jesus, Ignatius encouraged his fellow Philadelphians that they were to flee from the pressures of returning to observing all the Jewish laws and traditions. And he encouraged them to continue to follow Jesus. Ignatius wrote that Jesus is the what? Door of the Father, by which enter everyone, even the Jewish heroes, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and the apostles and the church. All of these have for their object the attaining of access to God's presence and his privilege, the attaining to the unity of God. And so how Ignatius used the idea of the open door to encourage his fellow Philadelphians, and based on the entire context of the Philadelphians being shut out from the Jewish synagogue and the way that Jesus had taught about being the door, we know that the Philadelphians would have primarily interpreted Jesus's remark that he placed before them an open door in the way that we just unpacked it. It would have been for them an assurance and a reassurance that once they had accepted and affirmed that Jesus is the one true God, that he granted them access to his presence, to his privileges for eternity and nothing and no one would ever change that. In fact, what makes this even sweeter is that belief in Jesus entering through the door. What it does is it guarantees that you and I, we will be protected from God's wrath during that time of testing. So you remember where we started and we were like, okay, how do we go about avoiding that severe time of testing, that great tribulation? It's by believing, accepting and affirming Jesus is God. Jesus said it this way, because you have believed, you've kept my command to endure. I will also keep you 
from the hour of testing that's going to come on the world. Now let's briefly recap all that we've learned from Jesus thus far about the Philadelphians. All right, so we have learned that they accepted and affirmed Jesus as like the ultimate Eliakim, right? He's the only one with authority to grant access to God's presence and privileges. He's the only one with the key to God's kingdom, the key of David, meaning he is the one true God. And we learned that because the Philadelphians had accepted and affirmed that Jesus is the one true God, Jesus thus granted them access, because all you have to do is believe. He granted them access to his presence and his privileges for eternity by giving them his spirit. So they entered through the door. And despite their circumstances, despite being shunned and shut out and mistreated and left for dead, those truths about Jesus, that he's the one with all authority. They became for the Philadelphians, the central convictions that governed their conduct. And if we as individuals, if we as a tribe are going to be commended like the Philadelphians, that's got to become true for us too. We all have to arrive at that same conclusion. The central conviction that governs our conduct must be that Jesus has all power and all authority, that he wants to protect us, he wants to provide for us. The central conviction that must govern our conflict, if we are going, our conduct, if we are going to be commended and not corrected, the central conviction that governs our conduct must be that Jesus has all power and all authority over all things, no matter our circumstances. And with this in mind, Jesus then gave the Philadelphians, and he then gave you, and he gave me one more exhortation. He painted this very vivid picture with a, a phrase, and what comes to mind is that we are to build a sort of like bullion depository around our beliefs, around our convictions about Jesus. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bullion Depository, it's located at Fort Knox in Kentucky, in the United States, and it's a fortress-like structure that stores a large portion, about $300 billion of the U.S. gold reserve, as well as other precious items in the government's possession. It's among the most safe and secure sites in the entire world. Have y'all ever heard the phrase, safe as Fort Knox? It comes from the safety and security of this place. And so let's imagine you guys are doing like a Ocean's 8 or Ocean's 11 kind of heist or something like that. In order for you to get into this granite line building, you would first have to get past the army of armed guards that are surveying the area around the clock with high definition um, night vision cameras and high definition microphones. And then if you so happen to be sneaky enough to get past the army of guards and all of their technology, technology, you would then have to climb over a fenced perimeter and through razor wires. And then you would have to like tiptoe through the field, watching your step to avoid landmines and get blown to pieces. And should you happen to actually make it to the structure and you somehow made it down to the subterranean area, and you encountered an 18-ton torch and drill-resistant vault door, you would then need two other people to help you simultaneously input at the right timing certain unique combinations. And my point in bringing up this whole Boolean depository is that the precious possessions that are stored there, they ain't going nowhere. 
They're not going to escape the possession of this depository. Nothing is going to be able to penetrate it. Nothing is going to be able to leave it. It is that secure. And in the same way that those possessions aren't going anywhere, what Jesus next said meant that you and I, that we are to lock down the beliefs that we have been given, that only Jesus has authority, and that when we accept and affirm he's the one true God, he gives us access to his presence and privileges. You and I, we have to take every possible measure to ensure that these truths never escape us and that we don't allow any other ideologies to penetrate this fortified structure of our hearts and minds. Jesus may have said it this way to us in more modern terms. If he was here among us, he would say, look, okay, in the same way that gold reserves and other precious possessions are secured at Fort Knox, I want you to guard possession of the truths that only I have the key to God's kingdom, his everlasting kingdom, and that when you accept and affirm me, that I have opened wide for you the door into it for eternity. Jesus said it this way to the Philadelphians. He said, hold on. Y'all say this with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Hold on. You guys watching digitally, go ahead and type in the chat, hold on. Jesus said, hold on to what you have, retain possession of it, arrest it, enclose it, make sure it does not escape you. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Now, this is also important. It's important to notice what else Jesus did not say. So Jesus didn't say, okay, I need you guys to safeguard the possession of all of your religious rules and rituals and traditions. And neither did Jesus say, I need you guys to hold on to safeguard your political fanaticism and your party's policies or platforms. Nor did Jesus say, hold loosely your beliefs about me and make room for whatever popular ideology has its moment of the day. And Jesus didn't say, you know what, go ahead and be nonchalant, be casual about your beliefs in me. No, Jesus said, Take possession of them, arrest them, fortify them, be like Fort Knox with your beliefs about me, hold on. And if we're going to be commended like the Philadelphians, then we must build an impenetrable, inescapable, bullion depository around these precious possessions, these precious truths, so that our hearts and our minds, our conduct is forever governed by our convictions about Christ. We have to build these impenetrable, inescapable constructs around our hearts and our minds, around the precious truths that Jesus has given us so that our conduct is forever governed by our convictions about Christ. And so where might we start? You know, how do we begin to hold on so that we don't lose possession of our crown, our eternal rewards, and so that we are a tribe, that, a community that is commended? Well, I suggest that we guard possession of these truths by making sure they stay top of mind. Here's what I mean. So most of us, almost every single day, we use some sort of key of some kind to enter into uh, a space or we enter into a space through some sort of door, right? And because many of us engage with literal and physical keys and doors so regularly, in order for us to not lose possession of the truths that we've been given, in order for us to hold on, I suggest we make a mental association. Here's what I mean. So anytime we engage with literal keys 
And those of you who came into the Cameo Theater or the Video Cafe, you were given a physical key. Go ahead and get that out if you want to participate. Anytime we engage with literal keys and doors, I want you to think about the truths that Jesus gave us, that once we accepted and affirmed he's the one true God, once we accept and affirm that only he has the key, then we walk through the door and we were given access to his presence and his privileges for eternity. So, for example, when I wake up in the morning, I typically walk into the restroom to get washed up and I get ready for my day. And so when I walk through the threshold of my door to create this mental association to not lose possession of the truths that I've been given to hold on, what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk through the threshold of this literal physical door, and then I will pray something like this, Father, remind me that you've already given me access to your presence and your privileges. And then as I'm grabbing my keys and heading out the door and I'm getting into my car. I use my keys to unlock the car door. I open the car door. I use the keys to turn on the ignition. It's literal physical keys and doors. I'm making a mental association so that I don't lose possession of the truths that Jesus has given me so that I hold on to what I've been given. What I'm going to do is I'm going to enter through the door of my car. And again, I'm going to pray something that's like on the screen. Father, Remind me you've already given me access to your presence and your privileges. And then anytime I arrive at work and I enter a code on the keypad or I swipe my key card to unlock a certain office or when I enter sliding doors at the grocery store or I pass through a gate at the airport, whenever I return home from a long day of work and I walk through my front door, so that I keep possession of the truth, make this mental association and hold on to what I've been given from Jesus. I'm going to say what you see on the screen. And this time I want you guys to join me in reading it on the count of three for practice. Here we go. I'm going to walk through my door, make this mental association. One, two, three. I'll pray. Father, remind me you've already given me access to your presence and your privileges. And so I want us to practice this mental association right now. So if you're able to, would you go ahead and close your eyes with me? We're going to do a visualization exercise. And so I want you to visualize that you're outside the front door of wherever you're currently living. And now with your key in hand, maybe some of you actually have the physical, literal key in your hand. For some of you, you're just going to have to visualize a key in your hand. I want you to open that door and cross through that threshold. And thinking about how Jesus is the only one with the key to the kingdom, how Jesus said he is the door. Having now entered that space that the door leads to, I want you to say what you've heard me saying. And so you could re repeat after me or say it in your own words. Father, remind me, you've already given me access to your presence and your privileges. Go ahead and open your eyes. Now, I hope that this exercise, it actually takes you to a new space mentally and emotionally and spiritually as well. You know, we encounter so many doors and so many keys every single day that if you make this mental association, you will begin to safeguard, build a Fort Knox around those precious possessions, the truths about Jesus that we've been given. You will hold on to what you have. And so I want you to do this every time you touch a literal or physical key or you enter through some door of some kind. 
And when you associate literal physical keys and doors with the truth that Jesus, our door, he's given you access to his presence and his privileges, when you hold on to what you have, here's what I'm convinced will happen for you all. I'm convinced that you will become more attentive to how Jesus' spirit is already at work in your life. You will become more confident and no matter your circumstances, you will know that the one with all power and authority, the one who wants to protect and provide, he is already with you. He is always with you. You won't worry as much wondering what will happen to you and how you will survive those cares and concerns. It will diminish. And when you daily associate literal keys and doors with the truth that the door Jesus has already given you access to his presence and his privileges for eternity, when you hold on to what you have, I'm convinced that the sting of rejection will decrease. I'm convinced you'll be less susceptible to being manipulated or spiritually abused by religious doorkeepers. Over time, you'll be able to overcome any unhealthy tendencies for acceptance and approval from others. You'll grow more motivated to respond with compassion to people's ugliness and you'll be less tempted to retaliate. You'll enjoy a peace knowing that Jesus will one day demand your enemies to give you the respect that you deserve. When you daily associate literal keys and physical doors with the truth that the door Jesus has already given you access to his presence and privileges for eternity, when you hold on to what you have, I'm convinced you'll become less judgmental. You'll grow over time more accepting and you'll become more impactful for advancing Jesus's kingdom movement. You will live with contentment knowing that Jesus commends you, that he celebrates you. He doesn't sharply disapprove you, though there's no need for correcting. You will feel grateful remembering that Jesus has promised to protect you from his coming wrath, the time of testing that's coming on this earth. And then you will be driven the core understanding, the conviction that will drive your conduct is that you will remember there will come a day when in front of all of heaven, in front of all the angels, that you will receive your eternal reward. The King Jesus will crown you with your glory. So how amazing is that? I mean, come on, all of this, we have to hold on to what we've been given. And so as we bring our conversation to a close, here's what I want you guys to do as one tribe and with one voice, wherever you're watching or listening, whenever you're watching or listening, go ahead and stand up right now. And let's together make this declaration that we want to be a community, a tribe like the Philadelphians whose core conviction was that Jesus is the only one with all power and authority. And so let's together just cry out, Jesus Jesus, the band is going to lead us. We're going to say, Jesus, Jesus, this is our declaration. Lord, that we want to be commended and celebrated and not corrected.
Lord, that is our collective conviction. That's our collective declaration that we believe your name will not be overcome, that you are the only one with all power and authority. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you will help that be a core understanding that drives all of our conduct. We want to be a tribe, a community that is like Philadelphia, that you commend, that you celebrate. So, Lord, help us. We thank you that you are the door. We thank you for your promises. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to keep this conversation going through Revelation next week. So we hope you'll return, whether in person or join us digitally. And as you guys go, may you all, like a Fort Knox bullion depository, take possession of the truths that Jesus is the only one with power and authority. And may you hold on to what you have so you don't lose your crown. God bless you guys. I love you. Take care. We're glad you're a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.